Lord in prayer. Father, we just come before you now. We humbly bow before you, Lord, the great God and King Almighty. Uh, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. There is no one above you, Lord. And we want to give you all of our praise and worship. We want to worship you as you have commanded, Lord, in spirit and in truth today. And so, Lord, let us come before you and uh, give you our praise. And we know in return uh, you will grant your wisdom and, and open the word of life to us, Lord. And we will learn. And we just uh, thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Be, go, you all be seated too. You guys stand so much. You just take, take a breath. <laughs> Settle down up there. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey. We'd like for you to fill out one of these uh, connection cards. It's a blue card. You'll find it in the pew back there in front of you. And so especially if you're a first or second time guest. And how, at this point, seriously, how many could just say this for me? You could. You, you know it. Okay. So, uh, so fill, fill this out and uh, put that in the offering plate or take it to the Connection Center. And we have a token of our appreciation if you want to take it out there and talk to somebody at the Connection Center. Okay? And then there's a prayer request here, a card. And so fill those out. Put those in the... Uh, in the offering plate, and we'll be faithful to pray for those. Uh, so there's a deadline coming up, and it's about back to Bethlehem. And our uh, director, I don't know if our drama director is here today. Kathy, are you here? Anyway, I know they were out late last night at a cardinal game, a victorious cardinal game. <laughs> okay. Against the Atlanta Braves. Anyway, the... Uh, uh, they uh, so so the, there's a deadline to tr get these things filled out and turn back into Kathy. Now I've been a Baptist for 50 years, and I know what a deadline means. It's amusing, isn't it? <laughs> it? It means I think there was a deadline. I should call the church office a week after the deadline and ask, was there a deadline? Yes, there was. Oh, do you still have those papers? Yes, we do. Can I still turn them in? Sure you can, because there's really not a deadline. <laughs> Don't do that. There's, there's a deadline Wednesday, so get out there uh, at, the, at the guest information and get your information on Back to Bethlehem and turn that in, please, by Wednesday, okay? All right. Hey, we're going to talk about, continue to talk about the love of God because, the, husbands, that's the, that's the bar we've got to, achieve, to try to reach. Amen? The love of God. Love our wives like Christ loved the church. So let's sing this great song that reminds us of the bar that we are striving for.
this time. Lord God, as we receive tithes and offerings today, uh, we're reminded of your great love. We're reminded that uh, we don't give back trying to equal what you've done for us. That's impossible. But we uh, give back because of what you've blessed us with, and your command is to uh, be a joyful giver, to give proportionately to what you've blessed us with. And so, Lord, we want to do that today. We want to honor you with this, and we're asking, pleading with you that every dime given would go to further your kingdom and to glorify your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are made. Oh, no, we, he comes not there some 
His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise it! Praise the is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more amen be seated please the choir and orchestra would like to share a song with you that is an old uh, well it's based on the old uh, hymn it is well with my soul and uh, added some new verses and bridges and so forth. And one of the uh, most stunning parts of the song, the biggest parts of the song, says, So let go my soul and trust in Him, trust in God. Uh, and that, as, as we're thinking about Ephesians 5, we're thinking about husbands and wives. Came and I've been there. God, can we really trust you? Mm. Is, she love, is she loving me the way she should? Is she respecting me the way she should? If, if she's not respecting me the way she should, maybe I, well, maybe she, is she deserves, deserving of my love? If he's not loving me the way he should, is, is, is he deserving of my respect? That's not the question God asked you. He said, here's my word, do it. Let go, my soul. And trust in Him, not in your own understanding. Amen?
I love to preach the sermon right after a complete choir special. And I like that because I feel like I'm just adding praise to what has already been given to our God. Um, the primary worship leader in your church is your pastor in the preaching of the word. And what a wonderful blessing to have someone like Brother David and our choir. Some nearly, I tried to count, some close to 50 on stage today proclaiming the Lord's praise. And what a blessing that is. And I just feel like it's my turn now, right? So Ephesians 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 25 in a few moments. Robert Robinson, speaking of hymns, uh, wrote one of the all-time favorites. It's found in your Baptist, Baptist hymnal on page 18 of your hymnal, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. And it's interesting that the book of Ephesians has that flow, doesn't it? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then we're challenged to praise God for it. I uh, had this conversation with one of our church members this week, and this particular hymn was on his heart. And it is one that should be on our hearts and our devotion. Come thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, that calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. When we think about Ephesians 1, we think about that mount of redeeming love. How about this one? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. What an awesome Lord. How his kindness yet pursues me, mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. Here's one you didn't know was there because you only have three verses, but when Robert Robinson wrote it, he wrote this particular verse. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realm, realms of endless day. And verse 3 is the one I want to speak to you about today. Because it's one thing to learn all of this, right? To avoid an idealistic approach, cultural approach, worldly approach to marriage. It's one thing to hear what the Bible says. It's another thing to put it to practice. Why? Because we're prone to wonder. And the verse says it like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Sing it. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now say it with all respect to the Lord. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. That's what we want to happen. 
What we need more than anything else in our lives, in our families, and in our churches, in our nation, is to have a biblical view of marriage. And once we know that biblical view of marriage, we need to latch on to our God. Check this out. Who doesn't just leave you there. He's the one who is at work in you to accomplish his purpose and to bring himself glory. So the best way to start is to apply what you've already learned. Don't forget what you have learned. Don't forget what the Word of God says. And after you remember it, ask the Lord God to give you the strength to apply it to your life. He doesn't just leave you out there. He actually works in you through His Spirit. So we must depend upon God's grace to live out the truth that we say has moved us. Now, I think Ephesians 5, 25, uh, 22 through 33 is the intersanctum of teaching regarding marriage in the Bible. And please remember that no matter how much we have been stirred, no matter how much our hearts have throbbed at what we've heard, and we've longed to see the glory of God in our marriages, if we don't put these things to practice and action, you'll get to the point where you will not be able to act. You just become past feeling and you, you never apply the truth of the Word of God. It's one thing to read it and hear it. It's another thing to be a doer of the Word. And God is asking us to be doers. So if you have an unbiblical, idealistic view of marriage, go ahead and toss it out. Amen? And then say, Father, teach me what it is to be a Christian husband or a Christian wife according to the Bible. And then pray to the Lord our God, our Father, who will give us grace and the ability to act upon what he has said. Father, help us be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving ourselves. So back to our text. Are you ready? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her. We're going to highlight that particular point today along with this one. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Let's stop right there. So remember, what's the major admonition to husbands? Husbands, love your wives. And then there's four things that we've been tracking. You love her unconditionally, sacrificially, and today we're going to talk about purposefully we love our wives. And then there's this overarching thing that we're following in two ways. The love of Christ for his church. And then oddly and strangely, we love our wives according to thinking about our own affection men for our own bodies. That's kind of odd. It's kind of strange at that point. But that's what you're going to see when you get down to verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Wow, what does that mean? I'm not going to tell you today. We'll talk about it a little later. But remember, those two analogies drive the text. And folks, they're motivations. All right? There, there's motivations given to that. The first is Christ's love for the church. Then oddly, strangely, a man's love for himself. So we are to take Christ's demonstration of love. A punctiliar action, eris tense, one point in time, Christ gave himself up for you based on his love, and he did so at the cross. Gave himself at one particular time, at one point. However, you 
are called progressively in the verb tense to so love your wives in this manner ongoingly, right? As an ongoing practice. So Christ's demonstration of his love in that one-time act becomes that consistent pattern of us loving our wives day in and day out. And we learned this last week. But Calvary love kills self-centeredness. All we have to do is pull a seat up to the cross, right? All we have to do is think about the gospel. Think about the cross and it changes us. So, husbands, love your wives purposefully. Okay. Christ gave himself up for his church first with an exclusive love. Have you ever stopped to consider, you know, prepositions move the world in the text of Scripture. And here it says he gave himself up for her. Pump the brakes and think about this. Yes, he's talking about this phenomenal, mysterious relationship between Christ and his church. But at the same time, he's giving men instruction on how to love their wives. And when it says he gave himself up for her, that is unique and peculiar and particular and exclusive. It is an exclusive kind of love. The Bible says he came to give up his life for his bride and for his sheep. Our great high priest comes just like the Old Testament high priest of old. And he intercedes and he makes atonement on behalf of his people. He, he went in with the twelve tribes on his breastplate. He didn't go in with the Hittites on him or the Persasites or the Gergesites. There is a sense where you have to stop and think about the fact that he went with the Israelites, the 12 tribes, next to his heart. He went in exclusively to make atonement for their sins. Exclusively. Say it a little louder. It's okay to say amen. He went in exclusively. This was a covenant of love manifested for his people. We sing this together as we sing From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. There's something right and beautiful about the exclusivity of the love between a husband and a wife. Y'all believe that? The Bible teaches us that it is a covenant relationship. You are in covenant with your wife and no other woman. Right? It's exclusive. He loves, you love her and no other woman. You are intimate with her like no other woman. And so is Christ's love for his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her exclusively. There was a peculiar love that chose and raised you up to life and made covenant with you. And he will never turn away from doing you good. Praise God for that. The church is Christ's special object of redeeming love. Husbands, if you are to love your wives, then you must love your wife with an exclusive and peculiar, unique love. You can, in fact, love no other woman in this world the same way you love your wife. A wedding vow. A vow at a wedding altar is words that constitute an oath 
before God. Now, have we forgotten this in our society? Sure we have. And before, when you do this, obviously they're first given to God and then to one another. I, I jokingly say to the bride and groom often, don't say your vows to me. Right? Because when I start giving them, it's easy just to quote them after me and not look at one another and not think about it. But when you're making your vows, you're doing so first to God and then to one another. But you're also doing it before witnesses. And something is said to this effect. Do you promise your faithfulness to your wife and to the Lord in body and soul and forsaking all others until death parts you or the Lord returns? We say something like that. Why? The two of you are in marriage commitment, covenant to each other and no one else. It's exclusive and it belongs to you alone. The kind of love that Christ calls you to regarding your wife is one where your eyes are fixed exclusively upon your bride. I want to remind you, gentlemen, strongest way I know how, we live in a sexually charged culture. Those images are everywhere. Those insinuations are absolutely everywhere you turn. The Christian man, in emulating the love of the Savior for his church, will join Job in Job 31 and say, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a woman to lust after her. One amen from men. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, Jesus made this point on the Sermon on the Mount, of which our ladies are studying a part of that in the Beatitudes right now. He said, if you look upon a woman and lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery. What does that mean? It means that the heart is the seedbed for the adulterous bed itself. It begins in the heart, which leads to the adulterous bed. Husbands, you have to have an exclusive eye for your wife and no one else. Amen? In Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 16, the Lord of glory comes to Ezekiel and he says, I'm going to take your wife. She's going to die. We don't know all the ramifications of this, okay? He could have been praying because she was already sick. We don't know. But we know that the Lord God took his wife. And the words there grip me when the Lord says, I'm about to take from you the delight of your eyes. She exclusively should be the delight of our eyes. Husbands are to learn to look at your wife in a way that you don't look at any other woman. As a matter of fact, the Bible also teaches that your body is even exclusively belonging to your spouse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I hope we all realize that marriage is a sacred covenant made to God. It's an exclusive commitment by nature that God is such, such an exclusive commitment that God prohibits adultery and states that adultery so violates the sanctity and exclusive exclusivity of marriage that what? He gives divorce as a grounds because of marital unfaithfulness. I hope you understand that that's one of the two that God gives for dissolving the marital union. The God who says he hates divorce, Malachi, right, is also the God that says he hates adultery so much that it violates the marriage covenant between the two. And for that reason, that's grounds that that particular union be dissolved. I hope you're thinking with me through these. May God grant us faithful hearts 
full of exclusive and particular love that is intoxicated with only our wives, even as Christ loved the church. Check this out. And gave himself up for her. That's redeeming love. Redeeming love. Amen? That would redeem us exclusively. Praise God for it. And secondly, Christ loved the church not only exclusively in the realm of loving us purposefully, but also in sanctifying love. Verse 26. Are you ready? This is the link, the largest part of the sermon. Here it goes. That he, which is a purpose clause, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, there's a connection, a connector, that he, and it is, in biblical theology, it is discussing a purpose clause, and three are going to flow from that particular Greek word, henna, okay? That he may. So, again, if we began to discuss sanctification theologically, we know full well that there are two distinctive parts of sanctification. They're different. They're not the same. So as we look into this, remember first the concept of sanctification or being set apart as it is derived from the Old Testament. This is key. Let me give you some verses to look at without turning. Leviticus 8, 11 through 12. Leviticus 11, 44. Leviticus 16, 16 through 19. So in consideration of those two aspects, you see the word that he might sanctify her. Most of the time when the Bible talks about sanctification or holiness, most of the time the emphasis falls on not the progressive but the definitive role. We might call it positional sanctification. Okay, So in your mind, if you've tracked much with this teaching from the Word of God, you've got to think about at a definitive time I was positionally set apart But in my life, there is a process of sanctification where we are putting off the instruments of sin and putting on the instruments of righteousness. There's a putting on and a putting off. I hope you understand those distinctions. The definitive is that which happens when the Spirit of God comes into your life at conversion. When Christ redeems your heart, there is a definitive break with sin And the old life. That doesn't mean that you're not going to sin. But positionally, God has, he's done something. He's put off the old man and he's made you new. That's what happened in your life. At that point, there was a new relationship that believers have with sin. And it's not the same relationship you had with sin before you met Jesus. It's just clear. There's a definitive break. Therefore, when you are a true child of God... You can't comfortably live in an ongoing state of sin. Amen? Do I need to say that one more time? When you are a child of God, you can't comfortably live in an ongoing state of sin. You have been taken out of the miry clay. You've been taken out of the pig pen of sin. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. And you've been given a new nature. And you're no longer what you were. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. And when you go to the pig pen and you're in sin, 
There's something that says, I got to get out of here because I'm not part of this country anymore. This feels very strange to me. I feel like I'm in a foreign place. I'm in foreign territory. I need to get back to my father's house. We sense this. This is the result, my friends, of definitive sanctification. This is the result of God working in you at one point in time with an action to redeem your heart upon which you responded with faith and repentance unto God. And thus you were changed. Changed definitively. God comes to us in the power of his son. He breaks the dominion of the power of sin. And then he puts us under the dominion of Jesus Christ, his son. And praise God, we're new people. We are new people. A gospel that doesn't teach this kind of liberation from sin is no good news at all. And that's why we preach that only Jesus can save sinners. Only he can give you this definitive break. Folks, there's a lesson here. There's a different sermon. I get it. Because we wonder sometimes how people can do what they do and never think about what they're doing and never repent of it. Perhaps it's the fact that you've never been made definitively righteous by God. You haven't been set apart for him exclusively. So the emphasis in this text, now that I've said all that, falls upon that definitive part. The Greek grammar makes it unequivocally clear that this is talking upon about a cleansing or a washing of the word, which I, could, I would connect to the gospel, which falls upon that definitive aspect of sanctification. It is much like, let me show you a clear reference, it is much like 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. It comes after Romans in my Bible, but I'm going the wrong way. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Listen to this. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, that's a definitive break. It's what the Lord our God does. Now notice, it is that he might sanctify her. How? How? By the washing of the water with the word. And we have to stop and ask, where does this particular analogy come from? Is there anything else here with this particular text? If you've studied Ephesians, you know full well that there's something to do with the ceremonial bathing of a woman. Did y'all know that? Go like this if you did. Okay. If you do, all right, Ezekiel 16, make your way there. Slap that lug beside of you, wake him up because he needs to hear this. Let's start in verse 8. In Jewish tradition, perhaps going back to Ezekiel, in this particular passage, I think Paul is reaching back to what's called prenuptial bathing. In other words, for the bride to be prepared with the covenant before her Lord, there is an analogy of the bride being prepared before a husband and how he treats his bride. Listen to verse 8. When I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water. and I washed off your blood from you 
and, to, and anointed you with oil. Most scholars believe that Paul is beckoning back to Ezekiel 16, 8 through 9 with a, a washing, which becomes a ceremonial washing. It's kind of gory in its description. But God passes by and he sees her blood, most scholars believe umbilical cord, still attached to her own filth. And he picks her up and he washes her and he cleanses her and he makes her his own. And this is nothing less than the picture of what Jesus Christ does for you when he saves your soul. Nothing less. He comes to us, he makes us holy by saving us from the wrath of God and then cleanses us from our sin. Separating us from the old life and unto God. There's a separation from and a separation to God. So... Paul says this washing is through the water of the word. The washing through the water of the word. Do you know that in John 15, Jesus actually says this in speaking to his disciples. Note the context. After Judas had already departed, here's what Jesus said to them. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Folks, do y'all realize the authority of the spoken word of God? As a matter of fact, it's best that you understand theologically so much about the spoken word of God if you're going to be an accurate interpreter of the Bible. God speaks, and he is not silent. This is not a picture book. It's a word book. Now, does, it get, does it give you pictures? You better believe it. But it's a word book. And here, Jesus reminds us of the power of the gospel and the word of God to change sinners' Lives Later on in the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, here's what Jesus prays. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what Jesus does for the church. He loves her with a sanctifying love. Tuck this away into the corner of your heart and mind because it helps us remember Jesus' commitment to his own people. He, think about this statement. Jesus loved us just as we were. Right? But he loved us too much to leave us as we were. Therefore, that love, that loving us too much to leave us where we were is what we, were, we are calling the sanctifying love by which he changes us through the word. Now, for a Christian husband living with his wife and trying to love her like Christ loved the church, he must seek to wash her by the water of the word. We make this commitment to love her with the kind of sanctifying love that Jesus Christ had for his bride. Can we make our wife holy? I've been trying to do this with Natalie since the day we got married <laughs> 31 years ago. Just pronounce her through mediation. Holy! Can we do that? We don't have the power to sanctify our wives immediately, positionally, definitively. Some of you are smiling at this one, right? But can we immediately sanctify our wives? Yes, we can. Kent Hughes poses this question to us in his commentary on Ephesians. Is my wife more like Jesus because of me? Huh. I think we should ask ourselves the question, or is she like Christ in spite of me? What a good question. Has she shrunk from his likeness because of me? Do I hold her back from her sanctification? Those are good questions. How can we be used in our wives' sanctification? 
How can we fulfill our roles as spiritual leaders in our homes? Our Lord, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, does not let the church simply go her way. Even though he has brought her in, cleansed her, set her apart, he doesn't just let us go our own way. There's something that he's doing in us. Now, if we are to lead with Christ as our head, what does it look like when a husband is the head of his family? What does it look like? In other words, head doesn't mean authoritarian, you're on your own. What's the model? The model is the headship of Christ. All right, y'all thinking with me? What do we know about our head? Christ. He was prophet. Priest. King. Y'all did good, right? That's who he is. Prophet, priest, and king. Husbands, you must exercise the role of a prophet in your home. As you instruct with the word of God. It is absolutely shameful when we abdicate this responsibility as a prophet in our homes and leave it all up to our wives. Ooh, I heard a little, yeah. It is. Well, pastor, she knows more than I do. Probably true. Let's be honest. Probably true. I grant that much. Priscilla may have, may have known more than Aquila in the book of Acts. So does that mean that you are called by God to go ahead and abdicate your responsibility because your wife knows more than you do? Thus is the problem, isn't it? Absolutely not. Why? Because God has said you are the head. God doesn't tell your wife to wash you with the water of the word. He tells you to wash your wife with the water of the word. There's a reason for this. Guys, there's no shame in pulling out the word of God and opening it up. Let's say it's Mark chapter 2 and you... You peruse through there and you're like, I have no idea what this says. I don't know what it means. And you walk over to your wife before a devotion and you say to her, Honey, can you give me some insight? Is there any shame in that? What team are we on? What are we trying to accomplish here? Remember, true sanctification in marriage is for you to help your spouse be more like Jesus. Right? There's no shame whatsoever. We're not only called to exercise a sanctifying love like prophets in our homes by teaching the word of God, but we're also called to be priests. Is anybody tracking with me? These are applicational points. This is application for the men. Prophet. Second, priest. You're to intercede for your wife. That doesn't mean you only pray. It also means that you're the one who initiates reconciliation and forgiveness in your home. Are y'all awake? Natalie said some of her girls were, were glazed over like a donut, I think, this morning because they had an all-night party, right? And they were a little glazed over. You look a little bit that way. But here it is, priest. You must do this in order for your home to be a place of grace. Not a boot camp. A place of grace. Homes. What's our motive? Is it punitive? Are we trying to destroy someone or grow them up in Christ? What's the goal here, right? We're called to be priests. Do you pray for your wife in a way that begins and ends with your own self-interest? Lord, if you don't fix this woman, I'm telling you what. 
she squeezes the toothpaste tube from the top and it drives me up the wall. By the way, that is one of my pet peeves, right? I fix the, I fix the toothpaste tube every time she just, I have to push that thing back up and get it tight. OCD in that regard, right? Lord, please fix her. She has no idea about that toothpaste tube. No idea whatsoever. Do we pray according to our own self-interests? Well, the intercession that we need to have is a function of forgiveness and reconciliation. We initiate that reconciliation. We initiate that forgiveness. And here's the deal. Even if she sinned against you, you're the priest in the home, you initiate the forgiveness. You initiate the reconciliation. We're often wrong, men. Do I have to tell you that? We are. We're often wrong. If this is true, then we have to show, right, the ability to say, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I want to remind you that there is no biblical precedent to look at forgiveness in the terms of telling someone you feel sorry about something. No, it's more than just sorry. It's forgive me for I have done this, this, and this. No matter what your feelings are, if you've done this, this, and this, you're to seek forgiveness for it. Amen? Okay. If she sins against you, then the priest of the home needs to initiate forgiveness and reconciliation. This is part of what it means to love your wife in a sanctifying way. You love her sanctifyingly. But you're also the king in that house. And some of you guys are like, hot dog. That's what I'm talking about. I'm the king of my home. Again, it's analogous to the kingship of Christ. Do I have to tell you what our king did? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with his father. He still, he didn't grasp that equality. He actually condescended to save us even though he was totally equal with his father. He was a servant king. He came with humility and kindness and servanthood. So in other words, govern kindly, but protect fiercely. That's what kings do. Amen? They govern kindly, but they protect fiercely. Let's make a commitment, husbands, that we're going to lead in family devotions. Sometimes when I'm delinquent and passive, Nathan will just walk by and put the Bible in my lap. In other words, you're up, dude. You don't have to say anything. I know what my responsibility is. I don't argue. I just say, yep, uh, I'm being passive. Yes, I must take that responsibility. Well, part of changing is being honest, men. You need to lay aside all the parts of pride that seem to well up in you when your wife might say to you, hey, it's important for you to lead. Why don't you just be honest and say, blew it. I'm passive. The word of God is to be so dear to us. That it's like honey from the comb, right? We can't, it's essential for life. So let's hold one another accountable. Um, Blake has worked, and we've all prayed about ramping up our men's ministry and make it more than just eating some deer wraps and some fried rabbit. And I like doing that, right? But why don't we... Enter in this in September, praying for one another 
that we assist each other in being the prophets and priests and kings that we ought to be in our home. Right? So, pray for your wife. I know that when we pray, particulars are important. We pray about matters. I mean, who's not praying about their 401k right now? Mine is sinking deep. Right? Yours? We, we think about things that we pray about. We think about issues of life and finances and car stuff happening and all these things. But what about praying the big sweeping prayers that are in the Bible that have to do with your wife's sanctification? Right? Pray that the Lord will sanctify her holy spirit, body, and soul. Making her blameless at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that the Lord will fill her with the very fullness of God. How about Ephesians 3? Pray that the Lord will, will, would, that she would be rooted and grounded in love. And that she may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. Should we not pray sweeping biblical prayers of sanctification for our wives? And I think the answer is yes. Her sanctification should be the most important part of your marital relationship to your wife. Her sanctification. Do I need to remind you that she's a co-heir of the grace of God? 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. She is a co-heir of the grace of God. Now do we need to operate with 2 Timothy 3.16 in our families? Y'all know that verse? All scripture is given by inspiration. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now, do we need some of that? Yes, between one another. There certainly has to be some correction time. Even when husbands correct their wives, but you should do so gently. We, we patiently instruct them with righteousness. But we cannot let the spiritual leadership fall to our wives in our homes. We have to take the initiative to live out 2 Timothy 3, 16. Now, I'm not telling you men to be a spiritual cop in your family. There's a difference here, right? I'm not asking you to become the spiritual policeman or the spiritual cop in your home. Hello, honey. Did you do your devotions today? Are you keeping up with our list of what we're supposed to do? Well... The Lord has not ordained you as the fourth member of the undivided Holy Trinity. You are not the Holy Spirit. Men, you getting it? You're not the Holy Spirit's assistant. You are one called to love and lead with gentleness and the spirit of gentleness. And the spirit of Christ will flow through you as you seek to minister to your wife. We need to be gentle shepherds to the souls of our wives. Conclusion, I am so thankful that part of the gospel being good news is that Christ died for people who were not lovable. And we could not keep the law's demands. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans reminds us that by the works of the law will no man be justified. You can never be made right with God through your works. Cannot happen. And guess what? Even after having trusted Christ and becoming new creations in Him, we still hold to the good news of the gospel that the Spirit daily renews and empowers us as His people. And we, we plead for mercy. Don't we? 
we plead for the grace of God. There's no doubt, that I think there's no doubt this is the intersanctum of biblical teaching on marriage. But stop and pump the brakes and think about what this text does. It points you to Jesus in your marriage. It points us to His grace. It wants us to rest in Christ. We should rejoice in our spiritual bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes at a wedding, I, wedding, I do that. I mean, here comes the bride down the aisle. But let's make sure we recognize the real bridegroom in that room. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We should rejoice in our bridegroom. Charles Spurgeon said this of our bridegroom's love in referencing the love that Christ had for his church. Listen, this love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. How often... Have I said to you that if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand it. If I had heard that Christ had mercy upon us, I could even comprehend it. But when it is written that he actually loves us, that is quite another and much more extraordinary thing. And then he says love between mortal, listen to this, love between mortal and mortal is quite natural. And comprehensible. But love between the infinite God and us poor sinful finite creatures. Though conceivable in one sense. Is utterly inconceivable in another. And he says who can grasp such an idea. Who can fully understand it. He said especially when it comes in this form. He in all caps loved me. He loved me. Me And gave himself up for me. And then Spurgeon ends with this. This is the miracle of all miracles. The call is to live out this love for our wives. Because of the love of Christ dwelling in us. That's the call. To God be the glory. Love your wife purposefully. How? With an exclusive love. With a sanctifying love. Pray that God will help us as men. To do so. Amen. Trusting Jesus all the way. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your written word. We want to thank you for time that you give your pastors to be in the word studying it. So that we do the best we possibly can to give what the Bible says. Lord, help us as your people to not only hear what it says but to be doers of the word. And I think that's where this comes in for the men, for me, for for fathers and husbands. Lord, not only to hear the word Sunday after Sunday and just forget what it says, but Lord, be doers. Ask you to give us the grace to apply it to life. Lord, to make a concerted effort. Lord, to wash our wives with the water of the word. Help us, Lord. If there's someone who is lost today, let them hear the call and the invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And then, Lord, let them hear the call that actually brings them to Christ. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart and gave her understanding for all that Paul had said. Lord God, would you do both of those today? Call us 
And then give us eyes and hearts to understand the beauty and glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to echo the words of that prayer. Are you weary, heavy laden? Come and lay your burdens down. Let's sing. Are you weary, heavy laden? Come and lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you. Jesus draws you. Rest in Him. He is gentle. He is lowly. He delights to bring us peace. Tender shepherd, mighty Savior, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us. Oh, how deep is His love. So come, come to Jesus and rest in Him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows to endless streams. Come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in Him. Oh, how sure His compassion for us. Oh, how deep is His love. So Jesus and rest in Him. What about us holding each other accountable to ask our dads, when's the last time you led your family in family worship? Yep. Think about what would happen in here on Sunday morning if our dads were leading like that. This is not a crush toward you. Slight toward you. I'm a dad too. All of us. We need to start somewhere. And I remember Nat and I were growing up. Uh, kids were growing up. Nat and I were growing up too, right? And we'd try to do those devotions. And one of them would flick the other one in the ear. Or stick something in the other ear. Or somebody would laugh. But you know, you think. You look back on it. You're like, well, was anything accomplished? And we say, yes, there was. We did the best we could. You keep giving the word. Keep singing the hymns. Keep picking those things out. Uh, let's make a commitment that we're going to try from our, right, from our side to do this as husbands. We can do it. Amen? With the strength of Christ, we can do that. Amen? Some of you men look scared. Right? <laughs> scared. That's okay. The wife's role is to help you. Help you be the leader that God called you to be. Let's sing one more verse and we're done. Are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? He is coming, soon returning, rest in Him. And
Praise the Lord. Uh, for Sundays, lately we have not been having Sunday night. And on Labor Day weekend, we'll not have Sunday night. But let's come with grateful hearts to our God. I think we have set aside the next Sunday after that, maybe the 15th as Lord's Supper. It's been a little while. I hope you'll make your commitment to be here for the Lord's Supper. Amen. God bless you. Let's sing, Oh, the Everlasting Love. Oh, the Everlasting Love of God, it shall 